Good morning, Journey. Hey, for those, I've been talking to kids all over um, church this morning who went to homecoming last night. Probably some of you over here, some of you over here. Um, how about students who go to homecoming on Saturday and get up for church on Sunday? Like, don't we like love kids like that? Um, I heard one of our middle schoolers ask a couple of our high school kids as they were dancing with their boyfriends and girlfriends, did they leave room for Jesus? That's a great question <laughs> to ask after homecoming. If you're here and you did not, we're, we're really glad you came to church this morning and we're praying that Jesus will fit right back in the middle um, of that dance somehow. But no, like seriously, we're so glad that all of you are here today. Our Bible study today is going to be in 1 John chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you might want to flip almost to the very back of the Bible, just like the book of Revelation, then a couple pages and you're going to find yourself in 1 John um, if you don't know where it is. We're in week two of a series called Blessed Assurance. Here's the question we're trying to answer these two months, October, November at Journey. How can you know for sure that you're really a Christian? Other than this being just really good Bible teaching to study, there are two really practical reasons that as a follower of Jesus, you need to know the answer to this question. There's reasons why practically you need to have assurance for your faith. One is this, doubt creates distance. Turn to someone near you and say, doubt creates distance. Man, like if you, if you're always doubting if God really loves you, if you're really a Christian, if you're really close to God, if you're really going to go to heaven when you die, it's going to create distance between you and God. Think of it this way. If a dad drops their kindergartner off for school the first day of kindergarten and his kindergarten is scared to death and he walks into his classroom and he gets down on his hands and knees and says, listen, buddy, you're going to be okay. It's going to be a fun day of school and I'll be back at three o'clock. Unless you're really bad, then I may never come back at all. And like it, like the rest of it's like on you. Like that kid may behave that day, but it's not because he really feels close to his dad. It's because he's afraid his dad is going to leave him. And a lot of you kind of have a faith walk where you see Jesus saying to you, like, listen, bud, I really love you. And when you die, we're going to be together. Like, unless we're not, unless you're bad, then like, hey, who, who knows what's going to happen? And doubt creates distance. So it's important as a Christian to, to be sure of your relationship with Jesus. I think the other reason that this series is important is because I think it's just important not to be certain of something that may not be true. So I said last week that one of the most theologically accurate but practically dangerous phrases in the church is the phrase, once saved, always saved. Oh, I said a prayer when I'm sick so like I can live however I want to live. And like once I'm saved, I'm always saved. I'll go to heaven when I die because I said that prayer when I'm sick. Not necessarily. Um, one, I believe that that leads to, at the most, an incomplete and immature faith. But for many, it leads to a misleading faith. Because Jesus said very, very clearly in Matthew chapter 7, there are people who have prayed a prayer and called themselves Christians who when they get to eternity are going to find out that they're not Christians. Jesus just said, that is a fact that's going to happen. And I want to make sure that you understand what the Bible says clearly enough that you can be assured that you either are really walking with Jesus or are not based on what the Bible says, not some prayer that you prayed 20 or 30 years ago. So those are really the goals of this series. And I don't know if you know this, but there's an entire book of the Bible devoted to this topic. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, Paul, uh, John gets to the end of his book and he says this. It's kind of the summary of his entire book. He said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he said, I'm writing this book to Christians. Here's why. So that you might know that you have eternal life. John said, I've written this entire book. Like this entire book is to teaching Christians how they can know for sure that they're really Christians. It's our goal between now and Thanksgiving Sunday 
to help you have assurances if you're a Jesus follower that you're following Jesus or to help you maybe see some holes in your spiritual experience and to think, you know what, I prayed a prayer a long time ago, but I don't think according to the Bible, I really am what a, a, the Bible says is a Christian, so I really need to begin to follow Jesus. So those are our goals. Before we ever dig deep into our Bible study, we always pray. So here, and if you're watching online, let's just bow our heads quickly. <sighs> kind of take that deep breath to settle your soul into this moment after maybe a long week, right before a long week. And ask God to speak to your heart today and to just say to you what he would want you to hear today. Tell him you'll do your best to listen. God, that's our prayer. Thank you for the next six weeks that are going to teach us how to have assurance that we are followers of Jesus. Whatever we need to hear today in our faith journey with you, speak it to our hearts I pray, Lord, from this point in the service that your Holy Spirit would be the one communicating to people and their hearts, not me. Let it be you from heaven, not me from this stage. And God, speak words of life and hope and truth to people so they might know where they are with you. That's our prayer. And God, we ask it today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So I know you're busy, and I don't normally ask you to go back and listen to old messages because you've got enough going on. And if you're hitting church today, probably good enough for this week. But last week's message is really important if you were not here for this topic, because last week we unpacked what real biblical salvation was. Not just saying a prayer, but what does the Bible say real salvation is? And our kind of salvation summary was three big points, and it was these, that um, Christianity is really much more a posture than a prayer. It is saying no to yourself and your sin. It is saying yes to the finished work of Jesus. There's a lot more to it than that. But Christianity is way more than saying a prayer. It's a posture that you live in. We said Christianity is a person named Jesus. And real Christianity, authentic Christianity, is living in a daily relationship with Jesus. According to John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life that you know God, and you know God if you know Jesus. And then we said that real Christianity is really much more proximity to Jesus than a prayer to Jesus. Uh, we said salvation is not a past commitment you made for a future blessing. Salvation is like an all-day, everyday, real-time, present-day relationship with a person named Jesus that you are close to, and every day you realize life is not about me, life is about Jesus. So if you weren't here last week, salvation is a posture and a person and a proximity, not just a prayer. You're like, Christian, how do I know for, but like, how do I know for sure, because I said a prayer, how do I know for sure that I am a Christian? Let's look at our key verse again today, verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. So John says, if you know these things, you can know. What are these things? You might circle those two words, these things, and then just write a little arrow up in your Bible. These things are verses 10, 11, and 12. John writes them and then said, these verses are what help you know whether or not you're really a Christian. What does he write? He says this, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe in God has made God out to be a liar because they've not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So today we're going to see the first of six assurances where John is going to say, if you have this, you can know for sure that you have eternal life. And assurance number one is going to be this, the testimony of authentic Christian faith. 
John said, if, you're, if you have a testimony of authentic Christianity, you can know that you have eternal life. The big question I think we would ask is, well, what's the testimony? Like, if we have the testimony, we have eternal life, but what's the testimony? Good question. He answers it in verse 11. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So we're going to turn back to chapter 1, and we're just going to begin to teach this books now over the next six or seven weeks, because John says, if you know Jesus, you know God. If you know God, you have eternal life. And the testimony of authentic Christianity is, that, is an assurance of your faith that you really know who Jesus is. We're going to say today, according to 1 John 1, 1 through 1 John 2, 2, that the testimony of authentic Christian faith actually says three things. It can never say less than these three things. And if you are an authentic Christian, your life believes these things, and maybe today you're going to understand them a little more clearly. What is the testimony of authentic Christian faith? Well, testimony number one is this. We believe Jesus has proved that he is the Son of God. One of the assurances, one of the six that we'll study that you can know for sure that you're a Christian is if you have the testimony of authentic Christian faith. One part of the testimony of authentic Christian faith is that Jesus has proven he's the son of God. Look at the first four verses of 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and, what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So the Apostle John, who wrote this book of 1 John, also wrote a gospel called John, and he basically, in the gospel of John, introduced us to who Jesus is, was, and will always will be. And in 1 John, introduced us to who the disciples experienced Jesus to be. But John 1.1 and 1 John 1.1 are basically the exact same message. John says, hey world, here's who Jesus is. In John 1.1, John would start his gospel by saying this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In the very beginning... God was there trying to get your attention. Look what he says in 1 John 1.1. Almost the same words. That which was from the beginning. There it is again. Which we have heard. Which we've seen with our eyes. Which we've looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. You might circle the word, word, capital W-O-R-D there. Because this is John's favorite culturally relevant term for the meaning behind all of life. So I hate to say this in front of high school kids, but probably some of the very little things I learned in high school that I still use today were learned in four years of taking Latin. Everything I learned in math class in high school, I now just use my phone for. Most of the stuff I learned in history, I just now use Google for. All of the stuff in science, pretty worthless to me at this point. But I wanted in high school, I thought in high school I wanted to be a pharmacist. Uh, when I was in middle school, we had a job fair. They listed the salaries of people in the job fair. I looked at the salaries, not the occupation. I said, that would be a good one. So I thought I'm going to be a pharmacist. And they said, if you're going to be a pharmacist, you've got to know how to read and write Latin because that's what we prescribe medicine. And so I took four years of Latin. Um, can't speak a word of it. Absolutely worthless, except 
When you learn Latin, you have to learn Greek culture because the Romans copied everything from the Greeks. So you learn about the Hellenistic culture, basically, of the Middle Ages. In 324 BC, Alexander the Great, this great military general, conquered all of what we know as kind of Asia in Middle East, and he wanted it to be Greek. So he represented, um, or he introduced the Hellenistic culture to all of the Middle East, and that lasted up through the Roman period to the time of Jesus And the underlying foundation of all Hellenized Greek culture was this Greek word logos. Logos was the meaning behind all of life. And the philosophers, Socrates and Aristotle and the boys, they would would stand and they would philosophize about what is the meaning behind all of life. So this word, like if you were a teacher and you said this is the logos, everybody would get quiet because you were saying This is the foundational truth for all of life. John uses this word when he introduces Jesus to the world. He said, hey, in the beginning, the meaning of life was already there. In the beginning, the meaning of life was already with God. In the beginning, the meaning of life is the God of the universe. And if you know the God of the universe and you know how to live with the God of the universe, you're going to have meaning in your life. That's what John 1.1 says. In 1 John 1, 1, John says the exact same thing. In the beginning, the meaning of life was there, but recently we've seen it. We've talked to him. We've touched him. We've spent time with him. His name is Jesus, but he is the logos of life. Jesus is the one who gives meaning to all of life. And he would say in verses 2 and 3, this is the testimony of authentic Christians. Number one, that Jesus lived. Number two, that Jesus lived eternally. Number three, that Jesus invited us to be with him and be a part of his mission. Number four, that Jesus connects us to God. Like, as you fill in the blank on your notes, just listen to 1 John 1, 2 through 3 again. John's like, here is the meaning of all of life. Verse 2, the life appeared. Jesus was with God in the beginning, but he'd been on earth. He was here. We saw it, we testified to it, we proclaimed to you the eternal life, which means we saw him die and come back to life. This Jesus who is the meaning of all of life, he didn't have life like we have. Like when he dies, he comes back to life. Like he is an eternal life. He was with the Father and he appeared to us. Why? We proclaim it to you, what we've seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. Jesus didn't just live, and he doesn't just live eternally. He lives so that we could be a part of his group. He lives so we could be a part of his mission. And he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Because he lived, we are now connected to God. John's like, this is what authentic Christians believe. That Jesus, who was eternal, became a man and lived on earth. And he died, but then he came back to life, proving that he's eternal. And it wasn't just like a show for one period of time, but he's now inviting the entire world to be close to him and to be on mission with him. And that is what connects us with God. John's like, this is what Christians believe. And I love what he says in verse four. I think this is awesome because he says in verse four, like this brings us a lot of joy. Talking about Jesus makes me happy, John says. John's like, here's what Christians believe. Jesus lived. He lives eternally. He's called us to follow him and be on his mission. He connects us to God. And then he says, and this is awesome. John said, I love talking about Jesus. I love being a Christian. I love living in Christianity. I love living on mission. John says, authentic Christianity is so in love with Jesus, they think it's the best thing in life. So are you assured of your salvation? 
I think in the American church in 2022, we practice apology apologetics too much. You say, what does that mean? We go to people and say, like, I'm sorry Jesus would ask you to do this, but like, if you would follow him, you're going to have to give up all these things. Listen, whatever you give up for Jesus is only going to make your life better. Because being a Christian is the best thing in the world. Living for Jesus is the best thing in the world. Having eternal life is the best thing in the world. Having your past forgiven is the best thing in the world. John's like, this is the testimony of authentic Christianity. Jesus proved to be the Son of God, and then he invited us into that thing, and it is like the best thing ever. That's the testimony of authentic Christianity, the first part of it. What else do we learn as we move into verse 5? We learn testimony number 2, that we can only walk in the light when we acknowledge that we walk in darkness. So how do I know if I'm really a Christian? Well, you can only walk in the light once you've acknowledged that you walk in the darkness. Look at verse 5. This is the message we've heard from God, from Jesus, and declare to you. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we lie, and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now let's stop right there. And here's what you need to know. If 1 John chapter 1 stopped halfway through verse 7, we would all just be trying to be better people living better lives. Because up to this point, that's what it said. Like if you're going to follow God, can't walk in darkness, got to come into the light. If verse 7 stopped halfway through, we would say Christianity is about becoming better people who live better lives. But I don't know if you noticed, the verse does not stop halfway through verse 7. And that is not what John says Christianity is becoming better people who live better lives. Let's look at it in context again, starting in verse 5. This is the message we've heard from Jesus and declare to you, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Listen, the testimony of Jesus' followers has never been that we are saved by trying to be better people. The testimony of Jesus' followers is never that we've become Christians because we've learned to do things well. The testimony of Jesus' followers is always we've been saved by being forgiven because we are sinful people, but then we met Jesus. That is the testimony of authentic Christians. And listen, what John just told us here is that walking in the light exposes our sin and at the exact same time highlights Jesus who forgives our sin. John's like, authentic Christianity is a group of people who step into the light to be exposed, but in exposing their sin, they highlight the work of Jesus to the world. Listen, here's what you need to know. If you're an authentic Christian, stepping into the light does not make you look good. It actually makes you look bad, but it makes Jesus look really good. Like as an authentic Christian, when you step into the light, you expose that you're a sinful person in need of a Savior. Stepping into the light does not make you look good. It shouldn't make you look good to anybody, but it should make Jesus look great to everybody. That's kind of what John is trying to teach us here. And let me say this as, as like pointedly as I can. You can never be assured of your salvation until you're assured of your sin. Because until you are sure that you are sinful, you're not sure that you need to be saved. You can never be assured of your salvation until you're assured of your sinfulness. Look at how John puts this in verses 8, 9, and 10. If we claim to be without sin, 
We deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. Not real Christian. If we claim that we don't need forgiven, truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just and he'll forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we haven't sinned, we make God a liar and his words are not in us. So until we're assured of our sinfulness, we'll never be assured of our salvation. And what John is saying is one of the ways you can know you're an authentic Christian is because at the point of your salvation, like what happens to you, the attitude you have previous to authentic salvation is three things. It's one of humiliation, it's one of hopelessness, and it's one of helplessness. How do I know if I had an authentic experience with Jesus? You'll know that your salvation experience was authentic if you were humiliated, hopeless, and helpless. Notice that I didn't say humility. Because no one wakes up with the humility to think, I need God. We are told we are humiliated in our sin because God is the one who tells us and confronts us, you're a sinful person. It's not something we learn on our own. God has to tell us, you're a sinful person in need of my help. Which means it's a humiliating experience to have the God of the universe say, you're not cutting it spiritually. This point of authentic Christianity is why so many people will never experience authentic Christianity or invite their friends into authentic Christianity because you're saying, Christian, I have a friend who's not a Christian, but I would never want to tell them this because it's offensive. I agree it's offensive. I also believe that until they're humiliated in their sin, they will not be humbled to find a savior. So a lot of people are like, I want my friends to be saved, but I will not bring them to a church that tells them that they're in sin because that's humiliating. They're never going to be saved if they don't think they're sinful. So like our job is to help people understand what God says about our state that we're in sin. We understand at the moment of authentic salvation that we're hopeless. According to scripture, our sin cannot just be forgiven. It's got to be punished. God doesn't just say it's no big deal because we say it's sorry. God says for your sin not to be accounted to you, it has to be punished somehow. We are hopeless to forgive ourselves unless we wear our own punishment. So when we get to the point of authentic salvation, we realize that the wages of sin are death, but I don't want to die and I don't want to be dead eternally. Somebody has to die though. And we realize I'm hopeless without Jesus, but because he died for me, I don't have to. I was hopeless, but then I found hope in a person named Jesus. We're helpless because there's nothing we can do to erase our sinful past. There's not enough money we could pay to pay back our sinful deeds. So we know that we've been authentically saved when our salvation experience was one of humiliation. God exposed our heart, came into the light, made us look bad, but Jesus looked good. We realized we were totally hopeless and we knew there was nothing we could do to earn forgiveness because forgiveness can't be earned. It, it must be paid for by being punished. And we don't want to do that. And we were helpless because we looked back on our lives and we said, I don't get a do-over and I, I cannot change what's already happened. Only Jesus, only Jesus can save me now. That's what John's saying in testimony number two. Unfortunately, modern Christianity in America kind of has the look of Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, we meet a man named Simon the sorcerer who had things going pretty well in his life, but he thought if he could add Jesus, it would get better. Like he thought his life was a level 7, but he thought if he had Jesus, he could be a level 10. So he's like, I like how things are going, but I also like this Jesus thing. Let's see if Jesus thing can make life better. And Peter looked at him and he said, you're cursed 
because you're trying to abuse who Jesus is and what Jesus wants to do with you. The testimony of Christianity is not that Jesus makes good people better. The testimony of Christianity is Jesus makes dead things alive. Amen? That like we sang that song, this is my testimony from death to life. Jesus did not take me from a seven to a 10 because I added him to my life. Jesus took me from a no heartbeat spiritually to being alive and awake spiritually, amen? And like we will never have the testimony of authentic Christianity until we admit that walking in the light means that we previously walked in the darkness, but God has called us out of it. See, so I want to know, how can I have the assurance of my salvation? We have to see Jesus clearly lived. He lived eternally. He invited you to follow him. He invited you to live on his mission. He is the one who connects you to God. You also have to understand at the point of your salvation that if you don't see your sinfulness, you will never see your need for a savior. If you claim to be without sin, God can't help you. But if you confess your sin, God is faithful and he's just. The word just is the word we get justice from which means your sins can't just be forgiven because they're no big deal. They have to be punished because God is a good God and he's got to punish things that have been done wrong, but he can punish them in Jesus. And as we keep reading, we read testimony number three, maybe the best one yet for helping us understand salvation. Testimony number three in 1 John 2 verses one through two, we learn that Jesus is my advocate, but not of my life. Jesus is my advocate of his life and of his death. Let me explain it to you. If you capture this, you may have captured the most important picture of salvation that there is. John says in 1 John 2, 1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the entire world. So genuine salvation, as we've already talked about, Genuine salvation highlights your sinfulness. It also highlights that we have a savior. But genuine salvation also calls you out of a life of sin into the way of Jesus that is not sinning never, but certainly sinning less and always feeling bad about the sin that you do commit. Jesus calls us out of sin. But John says what you need to know to have assurance of your salvation is who Jesus is. And he calls him first our advocate in verse one. Advocate is probably the best modern day picture of an advocate is a lawyer, an attorney, but maybe even more than that, like a, a trustee or a representative in court that speaks on your behalf. Here's what John is saying about our salvation. He says, genuine Christians will never stand before God alone. If salvation is presented as the moment where I stand before God and God either accepts me or rejects me, John says, the hope that you need to have is knowing that you'll never stand alone spiritually. One day, everyone in this room, one day, everyone watching online is going to stand before God to be accepted or rejected. Our hope is not the deeds of our life. Our hope is the deity beside our life. Our hope is that Jesus is standing right next to us and he is our representative before God, which is why when we get to heaven, it's, more, it's important to have more than a prayer. Like some of us, when we get to heaven, our last big spiritual experience, like, like God is going to say, all right, tell, like, tell, me, tell me why you should be connected to me. And we pull out a little Bible that our Sunday school teacher, Martha, gave us in seventh grade when we said yes to Jesus and got baptized. And we're like, look, right here on the page, um, my teacher, Martha, presented this Bible to me when I was seven and got baptized. And Pastor Dave even signed it that day at the church. Like, here's the evidence of my salvation. It's a certificate that's 57 years old. That's 
what some of you think salvation is. Salvation is not a certificate in your back pocket of some past experience. Salvation is a posture that we have where every day it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Salvation is a person that we have a relationship with. Salvation is a proximity, a closeness to that person that every day wakes up and says, you're still with me, I'm still with you, good. Like some of us, we're going to stand before God in eternity and we're going to realize Jesus is supposed to be standing beside us and we're going to think, I don't remember where I left him. Because the last day you spent beside Jesus was like in your college years when you were on a mission trip. Some of you, the last day you spent with Jesus was like the last day of camp, your senior year in high school. Some of you, the last week you spent really, really close with Jesus was at your old church before the thing happened to turn you off to all church. And you still go to this church, but it's mainly out of guilt. But in reality, you've kind of quit walking with Jesus because you get turned off to church. I don't know what your story is. Some of you, the last moment you had with Jesus was on this carpet two weeks ago. Adrian preached and you came forward and you're like, in this moment, I want to be close to Jesus. But as soon as you got up and walked away, like you left him right here, like he is still in a carpet square with your name waiting on you to come back. And you're going to stand before God and God's going to say, are you with Jesus? And you're going to say, like, I can't remember. I'm not sure the last time I was with Jesus. John said, salvation is seeing Jesus as your advocate at your side all times talking to God on your behalf. John would call him in 1 John 2, 1, the righteous one, which is not just a title for Jesus. It's the reality of who Jesus was. Look at verse 1 in 1 John 2, 1. He says, if anybody sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, and he calls him the righteous one. By the way, we just sang these words too. Jesus Christ, the righteous, has justified. Like, we're singing through First John, in case you didn't know that. Jesus is the righteous one. What does that mean? It means this. Jesus' life on earth earned a right standing with God so that he could stand before God on our behalf. Romans 8, chapter 3 and 4 says we could never in our sinful lives do everything that God requires of us spiritually, but it said Jesus met the righteous requirements of the law so he could earn a standing with God so he could stand and talk to God on our behalf. So you say, how do I know that I'm really saved? Because when you think about connecting with God, you think about Jesus standing right beside you and saying like, like hey, this guy's with me. In God, I've earned my standing with you. But I think the greatest picture we have is the words in verse 2. It says he's the atoning sacrifice. If we go back to our Hellenistic Greek language, it's the word halasmos in the Greek language. In some of your more traditional translations, if you grew up in a traditional church, you might have heard the word propitiation. He is the propitiation. It's a word that means payment. Basically, the thought of atoning sacrifice is Jesus is the means of our forgiveness Jesus is the satisfying payment. Let me give you a picture to help unpack this theological word a little bit. Here's what this means. When Alexander the Great conquers the world, he has his people find every ancient book that they can find and translate it into Greek because he thinks Greek culture should be the culture that runs the world, but he knows history and religions are important. One of the books he does that with is the Hebrew Bible, the first 39 books in our Bible that we call the Old Testament. He gets that into the hands of his scholars, and he says, I want you to translate this book into Koine Greek, common Greek, so the whole world can read about the God of the Hebrews because we want to know everything about everything. 
So they translated that book into Greek into a version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. When they tried to figure out what the word was for forgiveness in the Hebrew Bible, they went to the picture of the Day of Atonement, which was last week, sundown Tuesday night to sundown Wednesday night. We call it Yom Kippur in our culture now. They went to that day and they said there was a day in Hebrew culture once a year where the high priest who represented the people before God would put on special clothes and he'd go into this place called the Holy of Holies and there was an Ark of the Covenant there and he would go and present a sacrifice right there and that was the place, that was the place people thought forgiveness was given. And they named the lid of that Ark that's called the Mercy Seat in the English language, they named it Halasmos, the place of forgiveness. That's the word propitiation, the place of forgiveness. When we look at what happened on Yom Kippur and what Jesus did and does, some of you like me and like millions of Jews around the world fasted for 24 hours this week from sundown Tuesday, 6.56 p.m. to sundown Wednesday, about 6.58 p.m. just to remember how sorry you were for your sin. At the end of that day, like, not only was I hungry, but I was just deeply aware of my sinfulness. And at the end of that day, I don't believe I was forgiven like so many Jews do because I didn't eat for 24 hours. I believe I was forgiven because Jesus forgives me. But watch this. Jesus doesn't forgive me because I fasted for 24 hours. Propitiation, advocate, righteous one means this. It means that Jesus stands with us before God and says, God, you cannot judge them for their sin because you already judged me for their sin. I need you to hear this clearly. And if it makes you angry or humiliate you, I'm okay with that. Jesus has never stood before God and said, God, this is a good guy. Jesus has never stood before God and put your good grades on the refrigerator. God, look how good they did this week. Jesus is not making a scrapbook of your best moments spiritually, cutting out the newspaper articles so he can give it to God and say, God, look what they, they were on mission trips, they did youth camps, like they served in kids ministry, they tithed. Like Jesus is not standing with you before God trying to convince God that you're righteous. Propitiation means Jesus is standing beside you saying, God, you are just and they are a sinner, but you've already punished me for their sin and you can't punish both of us because that's not fair. Jesus is standing before God, arguing for you based on his life, not your life. I read an article a few years ago when kind of mobile deposits came out with checks where you could take a picture of your check and put it into the bank account. Some football players at a pretty major university had figured out a pretty good scheme at the time because the banking industry was a little slow to catch up. They would take the checks that their colleges were giving them as stipends and they would go to a kind of a a convenience store right before midnight and they would take a picture of their check and deposit it into their account right before midnight and then they would go directly to the store within five minutes and they would cash the same check because it had not been canceled out yet and they basically got the same money twice. And eventually they found them out, they punished them and they said, you cannot cash the same check twice. That's the picture of propitiation. Jesus standing before God saying, listen, I know you must punish sin, but you already punished theirs in me.
and it wouldn't be right of you to punish us both. Jesus doesn't argue you're a good guy. He doesn't argue you're a great gal. Jesus argues that he's already paid for your sin. And because he has paid for your sin, you get his righteousness. Do you get the picture? See, you say, how do I know for sure I'm saved? Basically, it boils down to this. Here's the bottom line. The question is not one day are you going to stand before God. The question is, will Jesus be standing with you when you do? And if he will, you can be assured of your salvation. And if he won't, you cannot be assured of your salvation. You'll be on your own. So based on this week, have you been living spiritually with Jesus at your side? Have you been leaning into him relationally? You've been talking to him? You've been listening to him from his word? The bottom line of how can I know for sure that I'm a Christian is are you standing with Jesus? Not will you stand with Jesus. Are you standing with Jesus? Like this week, are you standing with Jesus? At homecoming, are you standing with Jesus? At work tomorrow morning, are you standing with Jesus? The assurance of salvation is not who I'm standing before, but who I'm standing with. Are you standing with Jesus? Whatever you need to do this week to be comfortable in standing with Jesus, you got to take that step. We're going to close our service a little differently today because we've been trying to perfect the art of giving you time to learn and process and pray. And honestly, we've not liked how we've done it recently because we feel like we interrupt you by asking you to worship immediately. We liked how communion felt last week. So here's how we're going to close our service today. In just a second, I'll pray, and I'll pray a very quick prayer. And then after I pray, our band's going to kind of start playing, but they're not going to sing because already our 830 service told us that's distracting. Don't sing, just play. And we're going to put a three-minute clock on the screen, and we're going to give you three meditative questions to think through and answer spiritually. And here's my goal for your prayer time as we close the service today. Some of you already grabbed communion when you came in. Maybe next week you should start getting it on your way, the way to your seat. My hope is that you'll take 60 seconds, three different times, read the question on the screen, and apply it to your heart. Read the question on the screen, answer it honestly, turn it into a prayer. 60 seconds, read question number two. Answer it, apply it to your heart, turn it into a prayer. 60 seconds goes by again, read the third question. At the end of the three minutes, I'll come up and pray over all of us, and then we'll worship for a minute or two. But our goal is that you not just hear but do what God has spoken to you about today. And for that to happen, you got to think for a minute. So think of this as the sprinkler time. The message was throwing seed. Now we're going to water it and hope that it soaks in a little bit. So God, as we reflect on what we've heard today, speak to our hearts. Help us to answer and turn those answers into prayers as we reflect on you and what we've learned today. In Jesus' name, amen.